I ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be in chapter 4 this morning as we begin a brand new sermon series called Who's Your One? And as you're turning there this morning, I'd like to ask you a simple question. The question is, is this, what comes to mind when I say the word Christian? We're going to play a little word association game here. What comes to mind when I say the term, like, surfer dude? What comes to mind maybe when I say uh, senior citizen? What comes to mind when I say vegan? What about, like, crossfitter? What comes to mind when I say something like uh, sports fan? So now that you kind of have an idea on where we're going with this, what comes to mind when I say the word Christian? Andy Stanley, he's a Bible teacher, he says this, he says, if you stop people on the street and you ask them, are you a Christian, you're going to get some people who say, well, yes, and you're going to get some people who say, well, what do you mean by that? In, In our world, the term Christian is actually somewhat difficult to define. If you were to go back into the original meaning of the word, the original use of the word, if you were to look at the original men who followed Jesus, we would see these followers, they didn't call themselves Christians. The term Christian, it was actually a derogatory term. The other people, the other other Jews would refer to the followers of Christ as Christians. They they would uh, refer to them, it would mean like little Christ's. I want you to consider this. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. The word disciple, though, is used 281 times in the New Testament. The original followers of Jesus referred to themselves as disciples. More as disciples than they referred to themselves as Christians. Today, we use the term Christian to refer to those who follow Christ. I want to go back for a moment and to see what it is that a disciple actually is. If you turn to Matthew chapter 4, we're going to, we're going to see the calling of the first disciples, and I want you to get this glimpse of, of how Christians saw themselves in the early stages of our faith. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse number 18. Matthew writes this, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their their father, and they followed him. When you actually, and when we actually study the history behind what is happening here, this story makes a lot of sense. Sometimes we just read the verses, we read the words, we just take in the story and we move on. But there's, there's deep meaning behind what's going on in this calling of the first disciples. See, all Hebrew boys in those days would have gone to what they called Torah school. They would learn the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you started when you were five years old. 
And by the age 10, there was a sort of weeding out. Some of the boys would continue on with school. Some of the boys would be sent home to take in the family business. They would become apprentices in the family businesses. And the boys who remained would stay in Torah school till they were about 17, and they would learn the rest of what we refer to as the Old Testament now. And when you got to 17 years old, there was another cut, another weeding out of sorts. And if you wanted to go on with your religious studies, you would find yourself a rabbi. And then you would apply to be that rabbi's disciple or apprentice. And at the age 17, those who did not move on, well, they would go and they would work with their fathers or they work with their families in the family business at that point. So by the time you're 17, if you're going to continue on in religious study, you have made it past the first cut and you've made it past the second cut. And you would go and you would find yourself a rabbi. And you would sit at that rabbi's feet and you would request to learn from that rabbi. And the rabbis would examine you with a series of questions. And if they liked what the answers that you gave them, then they would, they would take you on. They would say you are worthy to be one of their disciples. See, the rabbis in those days could be very, very selective of the boys who are turning 17 years old and decided to go on with religious studies because that's what every boy wanted to be. They wanted to be a religious leader of their time. They didn't have rock stars. They didn't have sports figures. They didn't have YouTubers. You didn't grow up saying, you know what, I want to have my own channel and, and I want to have a million followers on, on, on my on my YouTube channel, you grew up as a Hebrew boy wanting to be a religious leader. So by the time you were 17 years old, if you made it past the first cut, and if you made it past the second cut, you would go out and find a rabbi. But that rabbi didn't have to select you. They could be very selective. They were only going to choose the smartest, the most talented boys to be their disciples. Now in Jesus' day, there was a very rare form of rabbi. If we look through Jewish history, we can find there was only about 12 of these very rare rabbis that would have what the Jewish people would refer to as shmiha. It's a, it's a Hebrew term, and, and this term actually it translates into the word authority. It says that these rabbis had more authority Authority than the other regular rabbis. They had shmiha. They were ones who would read the Torah, would read the Word of God, and could interpret it and would bring something new. See, most of the rabbis in those days, they weren't bringing anything new. They were, they were telling you what it said. They were, they were just repeating what others had said. There was a very rare form, uh, a rare rabbi that would come with this Authority. These were masters of the Torah. They had this spiritual authority because they can interpret the word of God. And, and they, they would be looked at as those who were so close to God that they could give new insights on Scripture. Now, knowing all that, we want to come back into Matthew chapter 4. And here comes Jesus, who knows the Torah so well. So well that at 12 years old, we found Jesus in the temple teaching other rabbis and correcting other rabbis. Jesus is one who comes with shmiha. He is one who has said frequently things like, you have heard it said, but I tell you. 
So he's taking the Torah, he's taking the word of God and interpreting it just a couple of chapters back, of, uh, a couple of chapters after, after Matthew 4. Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 7, he says, they were amazed because he taught them as one with authority. As one with shmiha, they would look at it. They would say, he's not teaching like the other rabbis. He's not teaching as the other people who are teaching the, the law. He's teaching with one who has authority. Not like anyone else. Luke chapter 20, it says they were saying things like, where did you get your authority? Where did you get your shmiha? They were questioning Christ and, and what it is that he knew. Who gave him this authority? Now get this, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, this new rabbi, just oozing with shmiha, just oozing with authority, chooses Simon Peter and Andrew, who are fishermen. The fact that they are fishermen shows us so much. What, is that, what does that show us when we think about the fact that they're fishermen? What it shows us is they didn't make the cut. What it shows us is that they were part of the B team. It shows us that, that Jesus didn't choose the A team. He chose the B team. He didn't wait for people to come and sit at his feet. He went and found them. He skipped out all, over all of the A players, and he went straight for the B players. The point is this. Of, of course, people wanted to follow Jesus. Of course, they wanted to follow this, this rabbi who had all of the shmiha. He's one of the, the, the most elite. They can tell that, that he knows his stuff, that he's not like the other rabbis. But Jesus picks these fishermen who in their day and age would be, these would be guys without much potential. These are guys who haven't been studying. They didn't make it past the first cut. They didn't make it past the second cut. We notice right away that there's so much that we can relate to our lives. Point number one in your notes this morning. For those of you joining us for the first time, you're going to find in your bulletin some fill-in-the-blanks, and I'm going to give you those answers. They'll be up here on the screen. Point number one in your notes this morning. He doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. He chooses the B team because his work in the world would not come from their abilities for him. It would come from what he could do through them. See, we see that people with a lot of talent and people with a lot of ability would only get in the way because they would never really learn to lean on the power of Christ. You see, Jesus taught that his power in the weakest vessel was infinitely greater than the greatest talent apart from him. Jesus wants to bring the power. He didn't go for those who were studies. He didn't go for the, for the scholars. He went for the B team. We are very much like these disciples in every sense. We are chosen. But we're not chosen for who we are. Rather, we are chosen for who Jesus can be in us. He didn't choose you because you were awesome. He wanted to make you awesome because he chose you. Your awesomeness is not going to come from your abilities. 
Your awesomeness is going to come from His power in you. We don't show up to Christ showing up. We don't, we don't come to the cross with our big bag of awesomeness and say, hey, I'm here. What happens if we show up with all, all of our abilities? What happens is Christ says, you know what? You're not the ones I want. I'm going to the B team because I can train them. So the question is not how able are you? The question is this, how available are you? Point number two in your notes this morning, I want you to write this down too. God chose us, not we, him. God chose us, not we, him. Like I explained, the normal way this all went down is that if you were the best of your class, then you applied to a rabbi to be this rabbi's disciples, and then you would sit at his feet, and if you passed his test, he would choose you back. There were many apprentices. There were many of these 17-year-olds who would go and sit at the feet of a rabbi. He would test them, and he might say, no, you know what? You're not on my team. You'd have to go find another rabbi. See, here's what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you that you might go and bear fruit. Bearing fruit means that you're going to win other people over to Jesus. He says this. He says, hey guys, I chose you and, and what I have planned for you and the purpose that I have for you, I am going to pursue in you. I'm not going to let it drop. I am going to be the power behind your deeds, behind your work. See, here's where our confidence falls at times. A lot of times we talk about we say, oh, well, we lost confidence. I lost confidence in Jesus, but what it's really not, it's not our confidence in Jesus that was lost. What we lose is our confidence in Jesus that he will do in us what he said that he would do in us. A good example is in Matthew, Matthew chapter 14. We see just a few chapters after this of Peter, who is then... In, in, in the midst of the storm with the other disciples, and, and, and they think that they're going to sink. And then here comes Jesus walking on the water, and Peter says, if that's you, Lord, call me, and I'm going to come out. I want to walk on the water with you. And, and, and so Jesus calls him, and Peter hops out of the boat, and he hops out on the water, and he starts walking on the water, and everything's awesome. And then Peter takes a few steps, and then, and then he sees the waves, and then he remembers where he's at, and then what happens? He panics, and he starts to sink. And we always say this. We always say, oh, well, see, he lost confidence in Jesus. Peter didn't lose confidence in Jesus. I don't think that's really true that, that, that he loses confidence in Jesus. See, he's confident in Jesus. He looks up. Jesus is still on the water. He hasn't lost any confidence in Jesus. What he's lost is the confidence in Jesus' ability to work through Peter to keep Peter on the water. See, there's a difference where your confidence usually falters it's not in the character of Jesus. It's in the promise of Jesus doing what he promised that he would do. Jesus can still do it. He can always do it. Jesus can always walk on the water. What we lose at times is that confidence that Christ is going to work through me with the power that he promised to work through me with. You're... 
you're fully convinced that if Jesus were at your workplace, many of us would, would say this, if Jesus were here at my workplace, that he would be a great witness to the people who are, who are here at my work. If, if Jesus was in my marriage, he would be an amazing husband. But see, what we forget is that that's not his promise. He didn't promise that he would be a great husband. He didn't promise that he would be a great witness at work. He promised that he would be with you and he would come through you to be a great husband and through you to be a great witness at your job. And that's where our confidence falters. It's when life smacks you down, when, it, when, when you fail, when we're up against these insurmountable obstacles in your marriage and with your kids and in your career and in your ministry. What we need to remember is, is, is that Christ is faithful. He called you and he will provide the power through you to accomplish the goals that he has set for you. It's not our power, it's Christ's power through us. And when we're struggling with our confidence, it's not struggling with confidence in Christ. We can always have confidence in Christ. What we struggle with is the confidence that God is going to be the power through us. Peter didn't falter with his confidence in Jesus. Jesus was still on the water. Peter was very confident in what Jesus could do. What he struggled with, he struggled with the fact and the thought that Jesus cannot provide the power in me that I need to stay on top of the water. In our world, sometimes we'll struggle with Jesus will not provide the power that I need to be a witness to people at work. Paul writes this to the church in Philippi in Philippians 1, verse number 6. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. See, when Jesus chose you, he had a plan. He has a plan that's all the way worked out. When he chose you, you got a glimpse at the very beginning of that plan. He had a plan for your marriage. He had a plan for your family. He had a plan for, for you to bring forth fruit and not a bit to depend on the amount of energy and the amount of ability that you bring to the conversation. See, Jesus didn't choose you because of your ability. He chose you for your willingness to allow Jesus to work through you. You really don't have to come to Christ with any ability. He's going to bring that. What it depended on was his ability to do it through you. And we've got to put our confidence in that. We don't put our confidence in ourselves. We put our confidence in the fact that Jesus promised that he would be the power working through us. Point number three in your notes this morning is this. He commands us to spiritually reproduce. We are commanded, disciples, by definition, spiritually reproduce. We see that to be a disciple. We are to reproduce. Matthew chapter 4, verse number 19 says this, And then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This is an essential part of being a disciple of Christ. It's not something that is for a few of us. It is something that is for all of us. The fact that Jesus said to do this, you cannot do this apart 
from being my disciple. If you want to be my disciple, being my disciple means that you have, you must spiritually reproduce. They are one and the same. Being a disciple, it's part of the package. It's part of the job. We're not simply called to be Christians. We are called to be disciples. And to be disciples means that we must spiritually reproduce. It's not just for some of us. The great commission that Jesus gave to this world in Matthew 28, the last thing he said before he ascended into heaven was this. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God's plan for his disciples through the great commission, it was not something. His plan was someone. It's you. You are God's method. We are all God's method. We want to see you become, by God's grace, a reproducing Christian and disciple of Christ this year. That's our job, is to reproduce. And I actually want you this weekend to commit to it. I don't want, you to, I don't want this to intimidate you. Disciple-making is simply teaching somebody else to follow Jesus. You know that 75% of disciple-making is informal. 75% of all disciple-making doesn't happen at church. It doesn't happen in a Sunday morning service. It, may, it might not even happen in a small group. It's informal. It might happen with somebody that you know from work. Maybe it's a neighbor. It's outside while you're watering the grass or you're taking the trash out. It's, it's a setting that just happened to happen. It doesn't happen to happen because we just happened to be there. It's because Christ led us into that conversation with somebody to talk to them about him. To us, that's an informal conversation. Of the 75% that happen outside of an organized service, that means you're on your own. It doesn't mean you're doing it by yourself, however. That just means that pastor isn't right there with you. That means a small group leader isn't right there with you. But I want you to know something. Jesus promised that he's going to help you with that, with that moment. And you say, well, what, what, what do I say? What are you asking me to do exactly? And I'm going to make it as practical as I can. I'm going to give you a few things that I'm asking you to do this weekend. As we, as we begin our new sermon series, as we begin a new year, we begin our focus, continuing our focus to reach Paris from within Paris, I want you to know that there are steps that, that we need to take to engage our community. And the first one is for us personally is to be engaged in the church. To be engaged in the church, one of our most important roles, one of our most important areas is to be involved in a small group. Our small groups are an amazing organizational unit as part of Paris Valley Community Church. It's where we execute all of these values and the mission of the church. It's where that moment exists that, that we step from being a spectator into being a disciple. And for a lot of you, it's that moment that you're going to step away from being in the seats to getting involved in a small group, because that's where we're going to live out and we're going to start practicing what it is that we're taking out into our community. In your bulletin, when you came in this morning, you would have found a couple of things. One was your tithe envelope. A second was a, was a, a, a square piece of paper that says, hey, small groups are starting up this week. What small group are you going to join? You don't have to turn that in. 
You can hold on to that, but I want you to take that and put it on your refrigerator or you put it on your dashboard. What small group are you going to join? Honestly, it's not a sign-up form. You can join them both if you want to. You can come on Thursday nights. You can come on Wednesday night. But which one are you going to join? Wednesday nights are over at uh, my house. The address is in your bulletin. Thursday nights is at Lagar Coffee Shop. A church our size, we should be running about three small groups right now. We're strengthening two of them and looking to launch our next one in the spring. But what small group are we going to join? Maybe most importantly, what I want you to walk away from here today is that I want you to identify today who's your one. Who is it? Your one. Who is your one this year? And I'm going to challenge you to have this person in your prayers, somebody that you're going to introduce to faith this year, that you're going to bring to Christ, that you're going to talk to about Jesus. I'm asking you to talk to God in prayer and say, God, will you show me the one person this year that I'm supposed to reproduce myself in spiritually? Who is it that I need to be talking to about Jesus this year? Here's my question for you, and it's kind of a twofold question. First, are you a disciple? Maybe you've never understood that until now, but, but are you a, a disciple? Are we disciples here, or are we just Christians? Are we people who take on a name that others give us to identify us by, or are we a disciple that reproduces Christians, that reproduces other disciples, that brings other people to Christ? Have you committed to following Jesus Do you understand who it is who has called you, who it is that has all the power to work through you to bring other people into the kingdom? If that is God, if that is Jesus, then he deserves more than our casual church attendance. He deserves more than us just coming in on Sunday mornings and then going home and doing our normal thing during the week. He deserves total abandonment. He deserves our complete and utter adoration. Amen? See, some of us this morning need to cease being Christians and we need to spiritually and actively start becoming disciples. Maybe you've never understood that until today, and maybe this is clarity for you for the first time that you're going to leave everything to follow Him. You're going to leave everything to become a disciple of Christ, that, that you've surrendered to Him, that you, that you now are engaging in the mission, that you're reproducing yourself. Because, because what I've been showing you this morning, what we've been looking at, is that if you're not, you're not actually a full disciple. If we are not reproducing others if we are not teaching others and we are not yet a full disciple the call to follow jesus and the call to make disciples are one and the same if we're to follow jesus then we are by definition to make disciples there are three stages of the ministry of jesus these are also in your bulletin and i want you to write these down these are so important stage one is where jesus he told people to come and see. 
first recorded question of Jesus in the Gospel of John in chapter number 1 is, is where are you going? And Jesus' answer is, come and see. That's what many of you are doing today. John 1, 43 through 46 says the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. He said, Come and see. I want to introduce you to Jesus. Come. Come and look. Come and learn. And then about halfway through the ministry of Jesus, he shifts his focus from stage one to stage two. Come and see changes into come and die. In John chapter 12, come and die means to be fully committed to me. John 12, verse number 25. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Then right towards the end of his ministry, before he ascended into heaven, he changed one more time to stage number three. And he said, go and tell. Go and tell. Come and see. Come and die. Go and tell. The three stages of Christ's ministry. Come and see. Come and die. Go and tell. There are some Christians, and I would assume here this morning, who are stuck in stage number one. We're stuck in come and see. This morning, I'm inviting you to stage number two and stage number three. It's time now where I'm inviting you to get off of the sidelines and to come and die and then to go and tell because that's what a real disciple is. Not just those who are going to come and see. We have to start with come and see. But we don't stop there. Stage number two is come and die, and stage, stage number three is go and tell. To identify your one this morning and to commit to it. This morning, it's not simply a sermon about church growth. It's a sermon, rather, about kingdom growth. Earlier, we talked about the definitions, the definition of a, of a Christian and the word disciple. I want to look at another definition this morning. It's the definition of a church. The definition of a church. A church is an operational unity of souls that are coming closer to Jesus Christ. How's that? Simple enough. A church is an operational unity of souls that are coming closer to Jesus Christ. I want to give you a couple of statistics about church growth and kingdom growth. Church growth should always lead to kingdom growth. We don't grow a church so that we can have the most numbers. We don't grow a church so that we could be the biggest church in town. Church growth always leads to kingdom growth. That's the reason that we do what we do. It's kingdom growth. I want you to hear some statistics about church growth that leads to kingdom growth. Only 2% of church growth goers invite unchurched people to church. 
Statistics say only 2% of churchgoers have ever invited anyone to church. 98% of churchgoers never invite others in a given year. 98%. Here's why that number hurts. More than 80% of the unchurched say that they would come to church if they were invited. Wow. More than 80% of people who don't go to church in our community say in surveys that they would go to church if they were invited to church, but only 2% of people in the church are inviting people to church. The numbers are way off base, right? You see that? There's a lot of people that said, you know what, I would go but if I was invited, but, but those inside the church, we haven't invited. Of the people who did come to church, I want you to know what brought them here. These numbers work really well in our church, but works across the board in most churches in America. 2% of people came to church because they saw an advertisement. Maybe they saw it in the paper, they saw it on Facebook. 6% across the board come to church because the pastor invited them. 6% came to church because of an organized evangelism event. And we've done some of those. You're familiar with some that we've done. 86% of people came to church across America because they were invited to church by a friend or family member. 86% come because they were invited by somebody. 7 out of 10 unchurched people have never been invited to church in their lives. But 86% of the church is made up of people who were invited. Doesn't that show you there's a lot of people in our community who are saying, you know what, I, I might go if somebody, if somebody invited me, right? That's our job. It does lead us to ask ourselves, when was the last time that we invited an unchurched person to church? I want to take a look at some other numbers in church and in kingdom growth, almost every church in America is going to fall into these categories. Through marketing and advertising and invite cards on doors, on, on cars, we're only going to reach and make up about 15% of the people who come to our church. So if we think about it, the front office of the church, all the work that we can do in the front office from ads and from flyers, is going to make up, we can reach... 15% of our church from the front office, what that means is that it leaves us with 85% that's not going to come from the front office, but rather 85% of the people are going to come from who's being invited from the front row. It's from people in the church who are going to invite others, who are going to invite their friends and their family. It's not going to come from, from the, the front office, it's going to come from you. What, what happens if we leave inviting the church to only the people in the front office of the church? If we leave the invitations to the organization, what that means is that we're going to miss an 85% mark. We're going to miss a lot of people who say that I would go if I was invited. We're going to do the best that we can 
at the church level, we're going to do the best that we can to reach the 15% that we know we're going to come because they saw an ad, because they, they, they got a flyer on their car. We're going to do our best, but it's also my responsibility to make sure that as a church, we're doing everything within our power to reach the other 85%. Let me ask you this. What if heaven was only made up of the 15% of people that were reached by the church's marketing and advertising? What if heaven was only full of people that got a flyer on their door or saw a paid ad on Facebook? What if heaven was missing 85% of people because we failed to go and tell? Because we just failed to, to invite others. Ephesians 4.12, it gives you my job description. My job description is to equip the saints for the job of ministry. It's a reminder to us and to everyone here. If, if we of the church leadership is to equip the saints for the job of ministry, then that means that we are all ministers, right? Everyone is a minister. And I'm also, actually right now, I'm going to use the power of peer pressure, if you don't mind, for a moment. If you are able, and if you are willing, I'm going to ask if you would stand and raise your hand, if you're willing and able to say, yes, I am able and willing to invite somebody to church, to ask somebody to church so they can come and get to know Jesus. I am going to tell somebody about Jesus this year. I'm going to invite somebody. If you're willing and able to commit and say, I will do that this year, I would ask you to stand and just simply raise your hand. If you would be willing to do that this year, if you would stand up and just raise your hand. Now, I'm not asking you to say that you know who it is right now. I would ask you to look around this room and to give a round of applause for everyone who's inviting somebody to church, for somebody here today. You may be seated. Everyone who's standing up, what you're saying is, I, I care about this 85%. I care about the other people that we're going to reach through inviting others. See, when you leave your house to come here, you are actually ministering to your neighbors. They know where you're going. They see you walk out with your Bible. Your actions minister to other people, but sometimes we let our actions do all the talking, and sometimes we find it difficult to actually use our words to say, hi, neighbor, I'm on my way to church. I'd like you to come with me next week. Hi, I know that you know where I'm going. I would love for you to come with me next week. Sometimes we let our actions talk, but we fail to let our mouth talk. And some of you say, well, I don't talk, Pastor, because I don't know what to say. I don't know what I'm supposed to tell them. And see, that's why you bring them here. That's why you bring them to small group. You don't have to do all of the work of ministry. You bring them here. Let me take over. Just bring people. Let our small group leaders take over. That's where the teaching is going. We're all going to come and learn together, right? But it's our job to invite others for kingdom growth. All I'm asking is for you to say to somebody in your life, I'm asking you to say this, that I want to tell you how much Jesus changed my life, and I'd like to introduce you to members of my church who are going through the same life-changing events that you and I are going through right now. 
I want, you to, I want to introduce you to a church full of sinners. I want to introduce you to a church full of people who are struggling through life but, but have, have focused our eyes on Jesus. Will you come with me to church this Sunday so that we can learn about Jesus together? See, I'm not asking you to know it all. I'm just asking you to commit to one. I'm asking you this morning to commit to bring the 85% to church. Those who said, I will go if somebody invited me, I'm asking you to be little more than that 2% of church members who will invite. I'm asking you to be 100% of church members who will invite somebody to church. It's not for the church. It's for the kingdom of God. Amen? What I'm asking you this morning is who's your one? Who is it? Who's your one? Who is it this week that you're going to invite to church with you? I'm not asking you to bring 85%. I'm not asking you to bring 15%. Today I'm asking you to reach one. Who's your one? In your bulletin, point number four in your notes, it just says that. It says, my one is, and there's a blank right there. I want you to write a name in that spot. Who is it? Who is it in your world? Who is it in your apartment complex? Who is it at work? Who is it at Starbucks? Who's your one? It was about two years ago. Kelly and I were invited to a Christmas party at another pastor's house, and the invitation specifically said, it said you don't have to bring anything. And it was referring to the fact that you didn't have to bring a gift for the gift exchange. But, but Kelly had told me, and she had reminded me, it's customary when you go to somebody's house for an event like this that you don't show up empty-handed. Ladies and gentlemen, I pray for those at Paris Valley Community Church that we don't show up to the door of heaven empty-handed, that we show up with those people who we have brought to heaven with us. Amen? That we show up with people in our hands. We say, God, I brought them with me to heaven. Is that okay? God's going to say, bring them all. Bring everyone you know with you. But it starts with one. Who's your one? It starts with who is it that we're going to be praying for? Who is it that you're going to speak to about Jesus? Who is it that you're going to invite into the kingdom of heaven? See, Jesus is telling you the same thing that he told his disciples. He's telling you, go and tell. We have to go and tell. And once you tell, he's telling you to then go and tell others to come and see. That's what we do. We've got the command to go and tell what we're telling other people is come, come and see. And then their three stages start. It's their turn. Ladies and gentlemen, our vision at Paris Valley Community Church, it takes flight in 2020. And our vision is to reach Paris from within Paris. And that means that we need to be talking to our neighbors about Jesus. It means that we need to be inviting others to church so that, that they can fellowship with other believers who are, who are coming closer to our Lord and Savior together. Who is it? Who's your one? One day there was a... An old man who was walking along the beach was littered with 
thousands and thousands of starfish that had been washed ashore by the high tide. And as he was walking, he came upon a young boy who was eagerly just throwing these starfish back into the ocean one by one. He was just picking them up and tossing them into the waves and, and puzzled this old man. He, he looked at the young boy and he asked what he was doing. And without lifting his head up from his task, this young boy just simply said, I'm saving these starfish, sir. The old man just chuckled aloud, and he said, Son, there are thousands of starfish, and there are only one of you. He says, What difference can you make? And the boy picked up another starfish, and he tossed it out into the sea, and he turned to the old man, and he said, I made a difference to that one. On April 5th of this year, 2020, we're going to be celebrating a very important date in our church. We're calling this Sunday 100. It's the week before Easter. We have a goal for that, hun uh, for that Sunday of having 100 people in church service that Sunday to grow the church and grow the kingdom attendance starting on that date. But see, to, before you can get to 100 people, you have to start with one it's not church attendance, it's kingdom attendance. There's not a single person in this city who we don't want to see in heaven. We need the attendance of heaven to be bursting at the seams, of heaven to open up the three services and four services because there's not enough room. I'm sure God will make more room. See, don't get the impression that we simply have to work to get 100 people in the church because that's not the goal. It's not simply a goal of people and church numbers. Everything that we do, everything that we do is about kingdom attendance. It's about kingdom growth. But it all starts with one. Actually, it all starts with us. It all starts with you. Your church will take care of 15% that are going to come. Survey says that they're going to come because they saw an ad. They saw something that we do from the front office. Our job is to reach others. We all have that job. We all have that responsibility. It's not just for some of us. It's for all of us. Who's your one? Who is it? This year that we're going to bring to Christ? Who is it this year, this week, that we're going to invite to church? There's so many people in this world who are absolutely willing to learn. They're at home right now asking, will somebody invite me? This morning, I want to be at a church that's going to invite other people to church. This morning I want to launch into 2020 the church that won't say no, the church that, that, that won't just turn, get in the car and, and go to church. We are the church that is going to stand up and invite others into the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.